Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods in practice. Matt Huey is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Connecticut. Matt is the author of numerous books, including The White Savior Film, Content, Critics, and Consumption, The Wrongs of the Right, Language, Race, and the Republican Party in the Age of Obama, and White Bound, Nationalist, Anti-Racist, and the Shared Meanings of Race. Matt joins us to discuss his multi-methods approach to studying film, film criticism, and film consumption. Hi, Matt. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. We will use your recent research on the white savior film as a way to understand how this multi-method approach works. So you, if you were to introduce this method or the methods you used to an undergraduate class who had never heard of them, how would you describe them and what is the relationship between them? So I wanted to examine three aspects of the genre we call white savior films today. But before we jump into the methods, let's define what we mean by white savior films. So first off, the white savior film is often a feature-length Hollywood-produced film that we are told is somehow based on some supposedly true story. In this way, we're informed that the story, if not the principle behind it, is somehow realistic and feasible. Second, the film features a group or person that hails from a lower or working class, urban or quote-unquote exotic and especially non-white context. And this non-white person or group is either isolated or experiences conflict and struggle with others that is particularly dangerous or threatening to their life and livelihood. And then third, a white person, the savior, enters that setting and through his or her sacrifices as a teacher, mentor, lawyer, military hero, aspiring writer, or wannabe Native American warrior even, is able to physically save or at least morally redeem the non-white person or community of folks of color by film's end. Now, when I began thinking about how to analyze these films, I didn't want to engage in what some scholars had done before me. That is, there were a few studies that analyzed a particular white savior film such as Cry Freedom, Mississippi Burning, or To Kill a Mockingbird in isolation from the others. So rather than that, I wanted to examine the most popular 50 white savior films over the last 25 years or so in order to look for their common denominators, something no one else had done. Also, sociologists have only recently taken seriously the role of gatekeepers, like film critics, into account when analyzing how and why certain cultural products become successful, or why they don't. And I wanted to examine how film reviewers are influenced by the racial climate in which they make their supposedly individual appraisals. After all, about one-third of filmgoers report choosing the film they see based upon reading favorable reviews. And then third, I wanted to know also about how people actually interpret these films, both consciously and unconsciously. That is, how their social background influences what they see and how they interpret it. So all in all, my work is a combination of content analysis of film, discourse analysis of film critics, and frame analyses about perceptions of racial conflict, and in-depth interviewing and focus group studies of audience receptions of these films. And together, that tripartite approach takes seriously the production, the distribution, and the consumption sides of media without valorizing one at the expense of another. Could you take a moment to briefly differentiate between content analysis, discourse analysis, and frame analysis? Because I know those are terms that sometimes scholars throw out there, but they, they sometimes mean different things by them. Yeah, sure, no problem. So when we think about content analysis, 
You can probably think about that one as one of the most common methods used in understanding written or visual texts, in this case, film. In short, it's a form of summarizing, either qualitatively or quantitatively, the common themes and pattern relationships that occur in a text or population of texts. Discourse analysis is slightly different. While it can take as its object of study the same text, such as film, it shifts the analysis slightly to take into account the styles, rhetoric, strategies, and patterns of interaction that occur between the text and its context, the text and power, or the text and how memory or history might be formulated. And then third, frame analysis derives from the work of the noted sociologist Irving Goffman and generally has been applied in the examination of how a communication source, such as a newspaper, for example, the New York Times, defines, constructs, legitimates, or justifies a particular issue or concept as appropriate to be reported on, as well as how a newspaper spins a topic in a particular ideological direction. We've talked a bit about the topics that you're interested in. Uh, Did you have specific or central research questions? Yeah, I did. So I I began to wonder about how the different aspects of these films, uh, which got me thinking about the relationship between dominant racial meanings and white savior films, content critics, and consumption. So all in all, I settled on three basic questions that I wanted to answer. First, I wanted to know how do these films reproduce or contest dominant racial structures of meaning, the dominant ideologies that are at play? Second, how did the variations in race relations relate to reviewers' interpretations of these films? And third, how do audiences make meaning of these films? So what was the methodological design you came up with to start to answer those questions? Well, there was a large design since I dealt with approximately five different data sets to answer these three different research questions. Um, I engaged in a deductive and inductive content analysis of 50 white savior films produced from 1987 to 2011. And I also wanted to know the relationship between film critics and dominant racial ideology or narratives. So the data for that came from two main sources and two different measures of distinct phenomena. The measure of mainstream perceptions of racial conflict was drawn from the description of events involving race as listed in the New York Times Index. And then film reviews of those same 50 films that I did the content analysis on were gathered from the movie review query engine or MRQE.com an online database that lists general film information and serves as a clearinghouse of online and print film reviews. And then I interviewed 83 individual audience members who watched a couple of the films in my 50 film population. And additionally, I conducted eight focus group discussion studies composed from those same individuals. Could you share one of your core findings or or sociological contribution um, so we have that in mind while we keep talking about the methods? Sure. So I think one of the most interesting findings was in regard to the relationship between film critics' appraisals and the dominant racial climate in which they evaluated those films. So if you recall, I I just mentioned that I turned to the New York Times Index to discover how the media constructed race relations. So I separated out three major types of racialized discourse found in the index and arranged them by increasing salience. One I call just group awareness, in which the times express an awareness of race relations at all. Second was group relation, in which uh, different racial groups were seen to be in some form of conflict or discussion or debate. And third, group threat, in which the times recognized there was a definite conflict between racial groups. And once I separated those three out, I found that the awareness of that type of race relation 
waxed and waned over that time period, from a high point of 517 mentions in 1988 to a low point of 186 in 2004. So then, secondly, the measure of racial group relations all but flatlined since 1993, with few mentions of racial group relations. And then third, perceptions of racial threats, again defined by mentions of overt struggles between racial groups, also experience variation but it still reflected a relatively stable and dominant feature of national discourse over that time frame, with the exception of an extreme drop-off from 1992 to 1994, a time of nationwide racial anxiety, if, you think, if we recall the Los Angeles riots, for example, and which correlated with the second category's near disappearance from the discussion. So looking at those three trends, the ebb and flow of those types and frequency of racial discussions in the in index signify the presence of, I think, three discursive time periods. 1987 to 1992, a time in which discourse was dominated by debates over multiculturalism and the place of race in various social structures like education. Then 1993 to 1998, a time in which discourse was supposed to be or was about kind of white victimization and white's backlash against initiatives for racial equality. And then 1999 to 2011, an era in which race was largely proclaimed as no longer significant and that we had become supposedly, quote-unquote, post-racial. Now, with those three in mind, and I think contra-conventional wisdom, I found that critics' appraisals of these films were directly influenced by those dominant national perceptions of race relations. That is, film criticism is generally associated with individual aesthetic judgment rather than socially shared scripts of explanation. So we commonly view a proverbial thumbs up or thumbs down about a film from, let's say, Stanley Kaufman or Rex Reed as a result of their individual expertise, particular interests, or wisdom gained over their career. But I think that this is a sociologically uninformed view of film critics, as it portrays them as solitary beings relatively disconnected from one another and as kind of social actors that partition off their noble appraisals from the lowbrow dominant ideologies and social currents in which they live. So rather, I argue that film reviewers actually constitute an interpretive community. That is, while a film's meaning certainly includes the author's intent that a critic may or may not bring to the fore, no film possesses meanings outside of a set of cultural assumptions regarding both what the characters signify and how they should be interpreted. So critics interpret films within a specific community that structures a particular understanding and appraisal. And given that reviewers operate as mediating voices between the film's production and its consumption, their interpretations must find expression between the rock of an accurate product appraisal and the hard place of people's common sense racial interpretations and expectations in each of those three eras I found throughout the analysis in the New York Times Index. That's fascinating. Um so when you were designing this study, what came first for you? Was it the topic that you were interested in, or did you have a methodological approach or approaches that you wanted to use? So that's a, that's a good question. I think that the topic definitely came first. I was intrigued by how many of these films are applauded and rewarded, and I was also interested in why there seemed to be so little critique of these films. So when I first thought of the study, I thought it would be kind of only an analysis of the films themselves. But as I read more about the topic, I became more interested in topics of evaluation, gatekeeping, and audience reception that no one else seemed to be answering. So I began to think about what kinds of methodological approaches would allow me to answer my questions. Do you have a sense of why other scholars who are interested in similar topics generally have 
uh, not ventured beyond the analysis of the film itself. Like, I mean, you were initially thinking of taking that approach, but then you decided to add these other methods as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure why that is. Um, other than to say that once a sociologist of the media actually moves away from the text itself and begins to encounter people, which are sloppy creatures, <laughs> whether, whether critics or audience members, you know, whatever that is, they then run the risk of a kind of disconnect between what the sociologist says the media means and then what the audience says it means. So, for example, what if I evaluate a film and find it particularly rife with white supremacist themes, but then I find that people of color seem to love the film? Do I then tread the dangerous road of saying that those people are all cultural dupes and are looking at the film with kind of rose-colored false consciousness glasses? Or do I risk my professional credibility and backtrack on my prior evaluation of the film? There's no easy answer when faced with that dilemma. So I think a lot of people simply avoid looking at media reception. But I think that if we rethink that dilemma, we can see that it is in, in, in and of itself a false dichotomy. Rather than either of those choices, sociologists of the media who take both film text and people's evaluation seriously, such as the late great Stuart Hall, for example, they have to possess a large and nuanced theoretical toolkit to help them make sense of contradictions and paradoxes that arise without taking lazy or wrong-headed shortcuts. So for me, the ability to do this kind of analysis is enabled by bringing together various literatures and theoretical perspectives that don't often speak to one another, such as the sociology of race and racism, cultural sociology, and critical theory, for example. Did you consider employing, uh, employing other methodological approaches when you were uh, putting this study together? Oh, sure. Um, rather than use the New York Times index, I thought about using a conventional statistical analysis of survey data about racial, racial attitudes. Um, but I didn't because that would measure something that I was not as interested in. That is, I was not so much interested in people's attitudes about race over that time period so much as I was interested in the national media discourse about perceptions of larger race relations. I was more concerned with the racial zeitgeist, if you will, the spirit of the age of each few years, the dominant racial ideology with which critics would surely have to engage if they wanted their evaluations of these racialized films to resonate with readers. And as critics of media, printing and publishing their evaluations in that same media I wanted to gauge how race relations were reflected again in that same media. So drawing from the index seemed a more appropriate way to operationalize the actual concepts I wanted to study and evaluate um, about how that reality varied over time. So we already talked a bit about how the topic guided your methodological choices, but how did your choices, the uh, methodological, methodological choices fit with the theoretical framing of your questions? So I'm a methodologically promiscuous sociologist. Um, that is, I dabble with different methodologies depending on what types of questions I ask. So, for example, if I wanted to know something about the ways that audience members develop, nurture, and deconstruct, let's say, in their everyday lived experiences, um, a film genre such as the White Savior film, that type of analysis would call for a kind of ethnographic strategy in which I would need to embed myself with a community of avid filmgoers. That type of immersion would be necessary in order to gain a sociologically informed view of the relationship between people's lived experiences and their cinematic evaluations. But since I was interested in a different question, notably what kinds of demographic and interactive settings influenced how audiences made meaning of just a handful of these films, 
then interviews and comparisons between focus groups fit the bill for my question. Had you used these methods before, or did you have to basically come up and make it up as you went along? <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess I'm an ethnographer at heart. Um, I've used content and discourse analysis in my study of texts in the field before, and I'm well-versed at in-depth interviewing, but this was really my first use of focus group methodology. And so I really had to take myself back to school and read up on what is an immense and long-standing sociological method that's been somewhat marginalized in recent years. So I played to my strengths, but I also went out on a limb in this study as I wanted to see how focus group interactions in that specific social space would influence how people made meaning of some of those films. Uh, now, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask a two-part question. Okay. Um, so first, could you tell us a bit more about how you collected or access, or how you had access to your data? And then what did you do with the data once you actually collected it? Okay, so this will probably be a bit of a long answer. Um, so, so in regard to the, the content analysis of films, for example, uh, I first developed a study population of 50 films from 1987 to 2011 drawn from the extant social sciences and humanities literature on quote-unquote white savior films. To identify these films in the first place, I first searched for the terms white savior, white messiah, great white hope, etc., in conjunction with words like film, movie, cinema, in various databases such as Academic Search Premier, Ethnic Newswatch, JSTOR, etc. And this search yielded hundreds of returns, as you might imagine. Uh, but when I limited the search to peer-reviewed social scientific and humanities journals that labeled a film as a white savior, a related term like white messiah, I was left with a population of only 127 films. And when I then limited that result to films that were released during my study time frame, 1987 to 2011, the population was reduced to 83 films. And I then reduced that number by selecting the 50 most frequently mentioned films. So once I did that, I then started to analyze plot and character synopses, scripts when synopses were not available, of those 50 films in order to rule out whether or not the film could actually be classified as a white savior film. Um, and I drew those uh, scripts from the Internet Movie Database and Internet Movie Script Database and other online archives. Um, and such a sweep of the study actually did not disqualify any of the films for the population. So then I had to start really digging into and analyzing the films and scripts through a kind of three-stage coding process. So first, those films were watched and scripts were read in their entirety in order to obtain deeper insights into the plot, character development, and racialized meanings of each film. And I took copious notes of patterns, themes, and categories in order to develop uh, what we might call sensitizing concepts. And then second, to refine that inductive coding process, I again watched the films and reread those scripts with a deductively guided approach drawn from noted media and race studies, such as Daniel Bernardi's The Birth of Whiteness and Vera and Gordon's Screen Saviors. And then third, those films were watched again and officially coded, and 30-second intervals of film served as my unit of analysis. So in sum, those 50 films totaled 6,207 minutes, or 12,414 30-second units of analysis, which had to be coded. So that took a little bit of time. So you always stuck to that 30-second interval, even if uh, there were sections of the film that seemed less significant, or... I did, I did, wow. because I wanted to have that type of quantitative and qualitative approach to the study. Wow. That seems yeah. incredibly time-intensive. <laughs> it was, it was. Um, so then in regard to the next part of, of the study, the relationship between film critics and dominant racial media narratives, 
That data, again, came from those two main sources I mentioned before, the New York Times Index and the movie review query engine. Right? So while objective measures of racial conflict are available, I was not so much interested in actual racial conflict as so much as I was interested in the dissemination and reception of news about that racial conflict, that is the perception of racial conflict in the media. And to tap that kind of amorphous category and concept, I turned to the index from the New York Times as one of the largest local metropolitan newspapers in the United States and its reputation in the industry as the national newspaper of record, if you will. And so to foreclose on the dominant perceptions of racial conflict, um, I turned to the index to measure the frequency of racial conflict as it was mentioned. And I operationalized this concept by capturing every mention of 48 different categories related to race that are mentioned in the index, such as affirmative action abstracts, uh, blacks or African Americans dash crime and criminals, Ku Klux Klan, uh, Latinos, Hispanics dash housing, Latinos, Hispanics dash labor, uh, racial relations dash education schools, police, whites slash Caucasians, it goes on and on and on. And that resulted in a total of 8,495 mentions. But as I discussed before, I, I separated out all those instances in which racial discourse was mentioned into three different types of discourse. And I arranged that by increasing salience of racialized conflict. Group awareness, of which there were 6,184 mentions. Group relation, of which there are 1,033 mentions. And group threat, in which there were 1,257 mentions. Right? So this variation showed a kind of rise and fall of perceptions of different forms and salience of the perceptions of racial conflict. So I then created a collection of film reviews via the movie review query engine. Uh, that preliminary search for reviews of those first 50 films in which I did the content analysis um, yielded a total of 2,916 film reviews. However, after selecting only English language reviews based on either the U.S. or Canada, the final number of reviews was reduced to 2,799. And each review was coded in three stages, similar to how I conducted the content analysis of the films through both the inductive and deductive approach. And then finally, I interviewed audience members. And so to empirically hone in on the resonance of this white savior film genre for different individuals and groups, I conducted focus group discussion studies and in-depth interviews in Charlottesville, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, and the Washington, D.C. areas over a four-month period. Uh, May to August in 2010, and then again in 2011. And all in all, 83 individuals agreed to participate and were drawn from local religious, civic, and fraternal groups, as well as from recruitment posters and snowball sampling. And from those individuals, I also pulled together eight different focus groups, uh, ranging from about eight to 13 members each, uh, six of which were both purposefully culled from existing organizations. Uh, one was a multiracial group of eight people drawn from the greater D.C. and northern Virginia area of people who all belong to the religious uh, organization, the Baha'i Faith, and who were already familiar with one another. Uh, the second group was a majority black group of 12 Southern Baptists from the same church in the Charlottesville, Virginia area. Uh, a third group was 11 white members of a white fraternity chaptered at the University of Virginia. The fourth group was nine black members of a black sorority chaptered at Howard University there in D.C., the fifth group, uh, group was an all-white group of 11 members of an Elks Lodge from the greater D.C. area. The sixth group was a multiracial group of 13 members of a singles group from the greater Richmond area. And the seventh and eighth group were two focus groups of nine members each, 
uh, one all white and one multiracial drawn from the Charlottesville, Virginia area that were constructed by me via recruitment posters and snowball sampling. Did you have help of uh, research assistants during this or were you, were you uh, doing this all by yourself? I definitely had help from research assistants. They helped me recruit people and organize the groups and do some of the transcription and so forth. I couldn't have done this all alone. <laughs> yeah, it seems like such a massive undertaking, especially considering all the, uh, the coding in the first two sections. <laughs> It was. I, I did this over, you know, several years of really putting together each piece of the of the puzzle together. So it's a it's a massive study. Yeah. What barriers did you face other than the massive amount of data <laughs> that when you were collecting it? Um, did anything go wrong, or were there unexpected challenges? Oh, there are always barriers when you collect your own data. So let's see. Um, first, some of these films were difficult to find, which is hard to imagine in our digital age. But but many I had to obtain on VHS tapes. Uh, so then I had to track down a VCR player because I don't have one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, I had great difficulty with constantly starting and stopping the movies on VHS tapes because um, I was using those thirty-second units of analysis, um, and the VCR would constantly overheat and turn off. <laughs> <laughs> so then I had to wait for it to cool down and for it to come back on again. Um, and then in terms of the analysis for the New York Times Index, um, you'll see in, in my book that I only use data from the index up to 2004, even though my film sample runs to 2011. And I did that because at the Times, the index's latest publication was 2004. And that was as far as I could go. And they had not digitalized their index in the same way that they have recorded the information in print. So my methodology wouldn't be consistent if I used the digital index. So also recruiting for the interviews and pulling together the focus group took took years and all in all it was a huge project but a but a labor of love in, in which I'm quite satisfied. Yeah, it's, it's impressive in its scope. Thank you. Generalizability and validity are central concepts when students are first learning about research methodology. How did these factor into your project and did this vary by the three methods that you employed? Yeah, they, they did factor in. Um, for example, in relation to content analysis, my form of, of non-probability population construction here uh, disallows inferences from the study population of 50 films to the entire general population of white savior films originally identified in the, in the literature, which was 127, if not films writ large. Um, traditionally, quantitatively minded folks might argue that my study then has low external validity. That is, that it's not generalizable to the entire population of films. However, my work aims to, to delineate transferable rather than generalizable conclusions. And what transferability refers to is the degree to which my results from my qualitative research can be generalized or transferred to other contexts or settings. So from a qualitative perspective, transferability is important because the results, context, and theoretical assumptions and findings that are central to this work, they can be transferred to other analyses and tested, examined, and evaluated in other settings. Um, also, the, the traditional chase after external validity is often based on the assumption of replicability, or what others might call repeatability. And basically, that's a concern over whether we would obtain the same results if we could observe the same thing twice, a kind of traditional scientific method as we're taught about in pop culture. Um, but in terms of focus groups, interviews, or even a particular critic's evaluation of a particular film in a particular time period, I can't actually measure the same thing twice. That is, by definition, if we're to measure twice, I'm actually measuring two different things. So in order to foreclose on the reliability for qualitative research, 
I emphasize dependability, in which I try to describe and account for the changes in context that may alter the frequencies or meanings um, in an ever-changing context within which the research occurs, such as the different racialized eras in which those critics made their evaluations. So in order to achieve transferability and dependability, my research relied on the reflexive movement between concept development, sampling, data collection, data coding, data analysis, and interpretation. And my aim is always to be systematic and analytic, but never rigid. And although categories deductively derived from the sociology of media and the quote-unquote new racism literature initially guided my study, others emerged throughout. So such content analysis is embedded in the constant discovery and constant comparison of relevant situations, settings, styles, images, meanings, and various nuances. And the empirical results thereby reflect a deeper cultural code about mythologies concerning whiteness and adopts the contention that analysis of racial media representation is one of the most fruitful areas of study for not only discreetly measuring social life, but it's also a rich repository of ideological meaning and cultural significance. So I constantly cross-checked and attempted to debunk my preliminary evaluations using various theoretical explanations so as to ensure that the theoretical approach I used best fit the data and allowed for the most consistent approach. So another often discussed idea when you're learning about research methods is the positionality of the researcher and how that affects research. Did this play a part in the research process or the design of, your, of the methods you used? Positionality probably played the biggest role in my interviews and focus group moderation. Um, as most people read me as a white male, my race and gender certainly influenced how and when people spoke. Yet I think it would be a mistake to think that my white masculinity made the data collected from other white men somehow more authentic than data collected from others. Um, before interviews began, I allowed for a warm-up period for people to talk to me about what they wanted to know about me, my interests, my reason for doing this project, and allowed them to quote-unquote interview me, for lack of a better term. And I emphasized that I wanted them to convince me of their positions and views, and that I would be convincible. So as the interviews began, I, I combined kind of two different modes of interviewing. Uh, the first is the traditional hermeneutic method that aims to understand how specific comments and situations uh, countervail or complicate abstract generalizations. And such a technique allows examinations of how people make sense of situations, which then provides a glimpse of the forces that shape both the places they inhabit and the criteria that reflect people's perceptions and the meanings of those social forces. So I tried to remain conscious of keeping the discussions guided, yet relaxed so as to facilitate the emergence of that data from the natural flow of conversation. And when I, read, when I did redirect the, the conversation, I did so by asking additional and leading questions or by probing participants to further explain their rationale or logic behind a statement. But the second approach I took is what uh, Anz-Jörg Gadamer characterizes as the hermeneutics of suspicion, quote-unquote. And that's where I spoke in ways that lightly challenged the validity, validity of what people said or pointedly asked for more clarification. So in the former, I simply tried to listen and encourage more explanations so that I could obtain rich and detailed information but in the latter, I began to challenge the validity of statements and, and pushed so that respondents had to expose the rationales, logics, and ideologies that underpin their statements and gave a, a kind of valid sense to their statements. So in that way, really pushing back and questioning and, and, and sometimes even feigning confusion really got them to be more explicit about what they meant. 
Did any issues ever arise as a result of the second approach? Uh, because this is a, a sensitive topic that people don't always feel comfortable discussing. Oh yeah, they sure did. But to me, that's that's wonderful data, right? So when when people became defensive or were annoyed um, that I seemingly didn't understand something or had to labor to explain their point of view to me, that was when really rich data emerged. Uh, for example, at, at several points in the interviews, people said to me, you know, Matthew, of, of course that's so, isn't it? And it's kind of a, an interrogative, like, I can't believe you don't understand tone, right? So I'd say that that kind of of course statement, when they go, of course that's so, um, is indicative of a kind of hegemonic or common sense moment. That is, members were least aware that they were using a particular cultural or ideological framework to understand the topic at hand. To them, it was common sense. But if they used another framework, then that discussion would have an entirely different meaning. So by engaging in that hermeneutics of suspicion and really pushing people to that point of frustration to, to expose what they thought was common sense, I was able to empirically study an ideological configuration often hidden in plain sight, those things that masquerade as common sense that are actually quite ideological. I'm wondering if I could ask a bit about the, the writing process itself. So did you have an audience in mind, and did that shape, did that shape the research? Oh, sure. I mean, th this is a scholarly book. It's published by Temple University Press, but I think it's written in quite an accessible style. Um, I wanted it to reach a general readership because I believe in part that the issues in it are central to what it means to be, quote-unquote, American, tolerant, progressive, and really speak to the cultural logic of race and racism in our contemporary moment. Um, and, I, and, and a member of a, an audience that is simultaneously supposed to hold discriminating tastes um, and, be, and have, I guess, an open-minded perspective on the media and pop culture should also find this book quite, quite attractive. Um, I think the topic and empirical content of the book attracts interest from far corners of the reading public, in part because... The issues are central to questions of race and media in our so-called post-civil rights era. And I think the book's also attractive to those that teach classes on race, media, and social scientific methodology. So as a final question, what are the main advantages or selling points of this mixed methods approach? Because clearly it's time intensive and you, you end up with a lot of data, <laughs> but what, why would someone choose to do this? So I believe the book fills a void of accessible empirical work at the intersection of the sociology of race and ethnicity and the sociology of the media and pop culture. Um, an intersection whose rapid growth on campuses across the nation is far outpacing the publishing industry's ability to produce texts appropriate for them. And in a world that's becoming simultaneously more media-saturated and also more raci racially confusing, that is, we have this post-racial discourse but very racialized realities, as well as living in a time in which people seem to want to look at multiple angles of a particular phenomenon, I think this book um, that examines so many different aspects of this racialized media genre will appeal widely. Well, thank you for joining us. Those are all the questions I have. That was, that was great to hear you talk about your project. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being here. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give Methods a chance.